Mommy, do you pray? Daddy, why do you pray? Grandma, who are you talking to when you pray? Why do you pray in the morning? Or why do we pray before dinner? Who and how long? If you ever talk to a child, children often are intrigued by praying. Children often have a unique perspective on prayer that's unfiltered, unadulterated, often very fair, and sometimes unintended. One question a child might ask about prayer really stands above the rest. Mommy, when you pray, does God really hear you? Is prayer just really talking to yourself? Is it some just is it just a religious activity meant to encourage your psyche? Is it just a a psychological tool that religious leaders create and conjure up to pacify guilty consciences or to encourage those who have weak faith. When we prayed this morning in those four prayers, did they just reverberate off the walls in this room? Or was there something more to them? Perhaps even more to the point would be the question, does God actually care? Will God answer my prayers? If you pause for a moment and consider this question, it's quite haunting. Consider the amount of time, maybe in your own life, you've spent praying. Does God hear my prayers? More than that, will He answer them? This is a quite frightening position to be in. If prayer is nothing more than words spoken silently or out loud that merely go into the atmosphere and fizzle away. When I pray, will God pick up the phone? Will he answer me? Friends, this fearful type of situation of wondering whether or not God is going to pick up the other end is exactly where Saul finds himself in our text this morning. Paul grabs, Saul, excuse me, grabs the phone. He calls God. The phone is ringing, but the problem is no one is answering. It just rings and rings. God won't pick up the phone. God has a a proverbial caller ID and he's screening Saul's call. God has once again, in the book of 1 Samuel, gone silent. God went silent. And as we considered months ago in Chapter 2, that's scary. That should frighten us 
any more, more than anything else in the world is God being silent, not talking, not telling, not revealing. We began our service with Psalm 19. This great and beautiful psalm about how God speaks. How He reveals Himself through creation. Right, Night to night pours out speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. David writes in Psalm 19. What does he mean? That creation non-verbally is communicating to us about God's character. But more than that, David turns to the law and, and sees in his word that Scripture reveals God and His character and who He is and, and how we can know Him. God is a speaking God, right? In the beginning. Right? He spoke. is how He created. And so when God goes quiet, that's when we should be most concerned. Most fearful. Well, this is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. Perhaps one of most folks' favorite chapter. Great conversations with the Montgomery girls a few weeks ago about this chapter and uh, their excitement to get to it as well. Uh, many uh, find this fascinating. Saul's encounter with the witch at Endor. Well, I invite you to turn there now to 1 Samuel in chapter 28, page 250. 1 Samuel chapter 28, look with me as I begin reading in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shenuam. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines... He was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, well, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, 
For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by dreams, or by prophets, or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Friends, our actions have consequences. For Saul... His actions came at a great cost, both individually, but also for his family and for the nation he led. How we live today matters for tomorrow. How we go about cultivating a relationship with God today provides the fertile soil for how we will serve God tomorrow. I believe the Lord wants us just to pause and consider these final hours of Saul's life and reflect on the results of Saul's self-reliance. In other words, we're not going to so much consider what Saul did as what led, what resulted in Saul's self-reliance. So through these final chapters in 1 Samuel, the narrator is painstakingly, in vivid detail, demonstrating that David is the better king. That's what the story is about. The whole story is about God raising up a leader, a king, who will lead his people. Not merely be a good leader and and have good leadership principles, but, but a man who will follow God, obey his word, and therefore lead the people to follow God and obey His word. The people wanted a king like the world around them. And so God gave them a king like the world around them in Saul. And simultaneously, God was raising up a king who was like him. A king described in 1 Samuel as a man after God's own heart. This king, King David, 
was the king the people needed. God goes at length in this text to show us where going our own way leads. Saul has hit the bottom of the barrel. Uh, He has fallen not merely on hard times. Saul has run out of time. So this morning, this story is presented to us in four scenes. Four scenes is how we want to organize our time this morning and and think through these four scenes as, as a camera, if you will, shifts from one scene to the next. There are four scenes in this story. We're going to consider them in order. I want us to think, what does God have for us to learn from this king's darkest day? First, scene one, fearful desperation. The first scene presented to us is one of fearful desperation. Saul is desperate. And his desperation is motivated by fear. And just a little aside for a fun activity, um, when you read through this book of 1 Samuel, I want you to highlight or underline or star in your Bible how many times fear is at the heart of man's rebellion against God. Fearful desperation. The narrator begins our our story this morning in verse 3, and and I know some of you um, in your OCD, like me, were like, why are we not going to read verse 1 and 2? That's concerning to me. Um, We considered those last week. The the chapter break is quite unnatural here. And so verse 3 is what begins this story, and we're told... That Samuel is dead. Now we've already been told that in a few chapters ahead. And in other words, the narrator is just reminding us how bad things are. It sets the stage, of course, for the medium to, to raise Samuel from the dead. And so reminded, we are reminded here that the hero to the nation of Israel is gone. The narrator also goes on and, and tells us that Saul was once a faithful king. Look with me again in verse 3. Look at, look at what he says. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Saul, in his attempt to be faithful to the Torah, removed from the land these plagues, if you will. Uh, they were diseases in the land that were causing God's people to be led astray. Mediums were those who practiced necromancy. In other words, they were individuals whose specialty was talking to dead people, right? That was their expert. We use the word witch, uh, so some older translations use the word witch, modern translations using the word medium, uh, because it was not merely talking to the dead. It had a whole range of dark arts, things like palm reading, tarot cards, and and horoscopes might fit in that category in the 21st century. They were people whose specialty was communicating with the other world, with spirits and demons. They would do this in order to conjure up dead spirits and in order to find guidance. What should I do? What's my future going to be like? And the law of God strictly prohibited 
such practices. God's word was very clear that when you go to the land of Canaan, know that this is a practice that you will be exposed to, and here's what you must do. You must remove them from the land. And so what Saul is doing, or what he had done, we don't know when, we're not told you know, how early in his kingship he did this, but nonetheless he removes them because they would provide a regular temptation to God's people. Now that the stage is set, we are told in verse 4 that the Philistines have yet again engaged the nation of Israel in battle. Where they're at is a strategic place, a a road that is a supply chain for Saul and his people and armies. And the Philistines want this road. They want access to it so that they can have access to the supply routes. And in response to this, we are told that Saul gathers the armies and he gets them ready to fight. So over the next few chapters, it's this battle that is brewing on the landscape. And what we are seeing is two different kings. King David and King Saul. And we see two different responses. One who is fearful and afraid. And one who's ready to go to battle. One who's ready to face God's enemies. Look with me at verse 5. We're told... His fearful desperation here in verse 5. Look what he says. The narrator tells us twice that he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly or melted within him. He had nothing left. His spirit was gone. He was done. He was was paralyzed. As Saul looked out and saw this vast army before him, he was Scared out of his mind. Now you may remember that the Israelites were not a sophisticated people, right? Uh, One author uh, coined this sort of phrase that they were the hillbillies of their day. Uh, They lived in rocks and caves. They they didn't have any tools. We were told early in 1 Samuel that they didn't even have swords. Like only Saul had a sword. And Jonathan, they didn't even have weapons. They just had farm equipment. They They were... They were quite silly looking when they went to battle. A few rocks and sticks. But the Philistines, however, they were the cosmopolitans of the day. They were the technologically advanced of the day. They were the ones that had all the gadgets, the the farming equipment, and the military expertise. And so as Saul stood there looking out over this vast army, he was afraid. He trembled in fear. And he quickly turns to the Lord for answers. The narrator tells us in verse 6 that Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. In surprising and shocking fashion, Saul seems to be stepping out in faith, trusting the Lord, calling upon the Lord, praying, right? We're supposed to pray. Calls out. No one answers. So he goes and and he gets the the Urim, which was kind of like casting of lots, they, um, a way to make decisions. The only problem with that is, is, you see, Saul killed all the priests. And there was only one priest left, and that priest was with David. It's kind of hard to hear from God when you kill the, the very people that are supposed to be the intercessories for you. And, of course, the prophets. There's no prophet going near after how Saul treated Samuel. None of the prophets would would stand near. 
And so God goes silent. This was nothing new for Saul. Back in chapter 14, this is what God had promised he would do to him. This is what God had said. Listen, I will not answer you if you will not obey you, obey me. We can go all the way back to, to chapter 13 and see that Saul's impatience with God served to be his ultimate undoing. You see, Saul had a problem. And, and I've, I've tried to highlight it week in and week out as we've studied this letter because it's meant to teach us this truth The problem with Saul was not his circumstances. It was not those around him. Saul's problem was Saul. It was his heart. He needed a new heart. He was a sinner in need of a Savior. The only problem is is that he thought he could save himself. He thought he could get himself out of trouble. He trusted in himself more than he trusted in the Lord. The Lord did not answer Saul because he had rejected Saul as king. And therefore, in an act of fearful desperation, Saul turned to the very thing he knows is wrong. Right? There's no excuse. Saul's like, I didn't know that we weren't supposed to do this. No. The text makes clear. He's the one that that removed the mediums and the necromancers. He knew what was right and what was wrong. See, Saul's problem was that he feared man more than he feared the Lord. This is what William Garnell captures so well when he writes, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. Saul had a God he could put in his pocket and carry around with him. He wasn't this big God. Friend, I wonder this morning, what do you do when you're afraid? Do you turn to the Lord in times of fearful desperation? Do you patiently wait for the Lord for His answer? Or do you need answers quickly to your prayers? Do you have this expectation that, God, if I pray, I want the answer today? I want it now? In times of crisis, where do you turn? What's your first step? What do you do? When trials come, when the waves crash, where do you turn to? Do you turn to the things of this world? Heaven forbid we turn to things like horoscopes. To astrology, trying to figure out my life based on the, the arrangement of stars. You turn to things like tarot cards and palm reading. I know we're in church and church people don't do these things. How often? How often we are so quick to go to these things. Recently at the mills and there was right in the midst of of the hallway there a palm reader. I mean if Satan was present there, he was present there. That stuff's real. So we'll see in a moment. Friend, do you... You demonstrate trust by crying out to the Lord in prayer, by trusting in Him. I think the narrator is making a very clear point to us that you can take the sin out of your habits, but you can't take the sin out of your heart. Let me say that again. You can't not change your habits and somehow everything's good. That's just behavioral modification. That's worldly. 
What God says we need in His Word, what we heard our brother Rod read earlier, is we need a new heart. We're in some serious trouble. We need a righteousness that is not our own, that is imputed to us. We cannot be righteous. We cannot be holy. We need a new life. And thankfully, through Jesus Christ, we receive a new life. You see, Saul's devotion to the Lord was fickle. He's, he was like, he's like us. We serve the Lord, we pray, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we do all the religious activity when we want something from God. When, when we have a need, when the bank account's empty, when the car won't start, then we get on our knees and pray. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But friend, if you haven't been praying, if you haven't cultivated a regular time with God, and you only call up God when you need some material possession? It shows that you're fickle in your faith. See, he chose to serve God when it benefited him the most. But yet, when God doesn't instantly answer him, what does he do? He turns to sin. Friend, I wonder, what have you removed from your habits only to see them come back again and again? Could it be that you're going about them all the wrong way? That what you truly need is a, a new life given to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you really need is friends, brothers and sisters in a family who are calling you to faith in Christ. This is where the local church is so helpful here. The local church is that place where God's people are encouraged, held accountable to the word of God. You notice in the text, there's no voice. His servants don't say, hey, Saul, what you're about to do is contrary to God's word. Remember how you used to put them out? Remember how those mediums were removed? Why, why are you going to them? You know this is wrong. He needed to be in a church. Brothers and sisters, church membership provides the accountability that fosters ongoing spiritual growth. You cannot, you cannot, the Bible does not ever present a Christian who is separate from the local church. You can try it, you can do it, and you can have fun with it, but I guarantee what's going to happen to you, you're going to fall flat on your face and there's not going to be a soul around you to pick you up. One of our responsibilities in this local body, as we'll read in a moment is our church covenant, our love for one another, our encouragement of one another, praying for one another. My prayer is that Charlie would not fall into sin. My prayer is that Rod would lead his family God in a godly way. My prayer is for the saints that they would be built up and encouraged and edified. That God's word would ring in their ear. Brother, sister, if you, see, if you hope to follow Christ, join a local church. This church, another gospel preacher church, I don't really care where you join. Join a church. And get involved in that body. And allow those people to encourage you. Fearful desperation. The narrator now turns in verses 8 through 14 to hard-hearted deception. We see a spiraling effect here. From fearful desperation to a hard-hearted deception. Saul is deceived. He is blind. In rebellion against God's word. Saul turns to a, to a witch, to a, a medium at Endor, to divine the spirit of Samuel. The narrator tells us here, look at verse 8. He tells us in verse 8 that Saul went out under the cover of darkness. Now, don't, 
This narrator's not just kind of highlighting, you know, what the weather was like that day, a little weather report. It was nighttime, it was cool. No, 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 this is intentional. Right here at the heart and at the end, the night is, the darkness is on display. This had practical, of course, means, right? Going out at night, we've got the army uh, is there. He changes his clothes, he goes out at night, hoping that no one will see him. But the nighttime served to be the best time to conjure up spirits, perhaps. The symbolism we can't miss, that this is being done under darkness and disguise. Remember what Jesus said, for men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. The entire scene is set in deception on the part of Saul. He's deceiving not only himself, but those around him. He promises to this lady, this woman, nothing bad is going to happen to her. For He then even invokes the Lord's name and says, the Lord will not punish you for this sin. Look what she says in verse 9. Look at her ironic statement. Verse 9. Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Isn't it interesting who the one preaching here is? It's the sinner telling the one who's supposed to be godly, hey, wait a minute. Like I thought you were a godly person. You did this. Why are you... Why are you now giving? It's interesting. Even in the midst of disobedience, God provides Saul a reminder of his past obedience. It's like a, a great, gracious way saying, look, Saul, remember when you were faithful to me? Remember? Yet these reminders only serve to harden Saul's heart. See, Saul longed to hear from Samuel. You think about it, Why is he calling on Samuel? Why not just call another prophet? Why Samuel? Because you see, Samuel is the only way he's ever talked to God. It's all he knows of God. He only knows God through someone else. Rather than cultivating a heart for God, he lived in light of yesterday. You ever know anybody like that? They just constantly tell stories about yesterday. Oh man, the good old days. They tell you stories of their past successes. Nothing wrong to do that, but it seems that's all they talk about. As if God cannot do anything in their life today. It's all about the the great stories of the past. It seems like their best days were always yesterday and never today. Friends, that was Saul. That's what he did. Oh, remember that time God delivered us? Remember that? Remember that? He lived on the past. And all he could remember was those, this one successful day he had, this one successful battle he had right when he was anointed king. Everything else paled in comparison. And the reason is, the text makes clear, is because Saul depended upon himself. He was self-reliant rather than reliant on God. See, Saul's biggest problem in life was not his circumstances. It was not the people around him. It was Saul. And friend, I wonder this morning if your biggest problems are not you and not the circumstances and people around you. That what you really need is Jesus to change your life. Saul goes on in the text and tells and asks the woman to conjure up Samuel. When she saw Samuel, she cried out. Feasibly because she had never 
maybe perhaps experienced this before. Maybe this is all new to her. Maybe all along she's really just been a, been a sham, a fake. She never really conjured any dead people up before. But then God in his miraculous power allows her to do this. We're really not sure whatever the limits are of this woman's power. God allowed this woman to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. The, the, the clarity of the Hebrew text, the vividness and the language used, demonstrates the historicity of this. More than that, no other passage of Scripture, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, does not refute the reality and the historicity of this text. This really happened, in other words. Scripture is clear that doing this form of, of magic was forbidden Yet, the Bible forbids the use of dark arts, not because it's a lie, but because it's real. Messing with demonic spirits is real. It's nothing to be toyed with and played around with. Demons are real. As God makes clear in his word, if a person turns to these things, to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Leviticus 20, verse 6. And that's exactly what God does in this text. In fact, Samuel had foreshadowed this already. Back in chapter 15, he had told Saul, listen, because of your sinful rebellion against me, because you can't obey my words and my clear instructions that I've laid out for you, since you can't do that, I am ripping the kingdom from your hand. And Saul was deceived. He thought he could get away with it. He thought everything would be fine. And friend, I wonder, how do you use God in this way? How do you use God the way, the way Saul is doing here? This hard-hearted deception only led deeper into foolish denial in verses 15 through 19. I know we can't spend as much time as you would like on these, these verses, but, but I hope you capture the big idea here. Paul, Saul then spirals into foolish denial. He's denying reality here. He's denying the truth. Samuel's spirit has been conjured up. It's now present before Saul, whatever means that was. Samuel questions Saul's motive in all this. Why are you doing this? You, I've already told you. So, so what Samuel says to Saul here, say that five times fast, uh, what he says to him here is nothing new. In other words, there's no new revelation. There's nothing new uh, in, in form of information outside of the fact that Samuel says, tomorrow you're going to be with me. In other words, you're going to die. Samuel reminds Saul of his sin. He reminds him. And Saul's life here illustrates to us what happens when we abandon God's way and go our own way. It leads us into this sort of foolish denial. Why was God doing this? Why, why was God... You know, If you just sort of take this text, you look at it and say, Okay, listen. Samuel, excuse me, Saul turned to the Lord. He, he prayed. And God didn't answer him. It's kind of mean, kind of unfair. I mean, he goes to God. He demonstrates some faith. He, he turns to the Lord. Well, it's not fair that God doesn't answer his prayer. That's not right. Well, why? Well, because God had rejected him. God in his sovereignty 
said, no, I'm done. I'm done with your sin and your rebelling. He knew Saul's heart. He knew that Saul would not repent. And all the times that Saul has repented in this book, every time he, he turns back into sin. You see, we think that repentance is just merely being sorry, like feeling bad. We get guilt, feel guilty, feel bad. We say sorry, and that's repentance. Friend, that is not biblical repentance. The Bible presents repentance as turning from something, sin, to something else, to God. In other words, it is a, it's, a, it's a new life. It's a new way. It's saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not wallowing in our sin and just crawling out when we haven't had enough and asking for forgiveness. The point we learn here is that God is sufficient. His word was sufficient. He was enough. But for Saul, he wasn't. He needed more. This is why Samuel makes clear all the way back in chapter 12, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But, he warned him in chapter 12, if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away both you and your king. Saul did not heed that warning. God's people did not remain faithful, nor did he. And therefore, because of Saul's continual rebellion, God rejected him, we are told in verse 18. Right here, look with me at verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's why God didn't answer. God didn't answer because... Saul wasn't going to listen to him anyways. He wasn't going to obey. He was done obeying. The point we are to see is this is the Lord's doing. Six times in the verse, Samuel says, the Lord has done, the Lord has done, the Lord has done. Six times. I think he wants you to understand the point of the text. God's behind this. God can withhold his word, and God can give his word. God can answer prayer, and he, can, he cannot answer prayer. Silence was the Lord's answer. I want you to see that. His silence was his answer. It was his judgment of sinful rebellion against him. And this story of sinful rebellion would be a familiar story to the kings of Israel. Who would on the outside say, I want to follow God. But inwardly they were wicked. And I wonder, are you cultivating a heart for God in your own life? The only way you can know God is by, by hearing from Him in His Word. This story is very unique, right? We don't communicate, communicate to God or hear from God through uh, these means. We communicate, we hear from God in His Word, right? This is, this is where you hear from God. He doesn't write things in the sky. It doesn't come intuitively in dreams. It comes right here. In his word. You want to know the, the Lord's will for your life. Uh, it's not found in horoscopes. It's not found in interpreting those weird dreams you have. Well, I had a weird one last night. Right? It's not through that. It's through diligent, prayerful study of his word. There you find the Lord's way. There you find how to follow him. There you go. 
Well, the final scene we see set before us, verses 20 through 25, hopeless despair. Hopeless despair. One commentator summarized this whole chapter by that word, hopelessness. Ever been there? No hope. There's no tomorrow on the horizon. This final scene is quite somber. It's sad. The language that is used here is just somber. It's saddening. It's quiet. It's dark. Samuel's words ring in Saul's ear. Tomorrow you will be with me. You're going to die. At first, Saul is in shock, perhaps. Just to know what to say, paralyzed by a new fear. The fear of dying. The genuine fear for Saul now is not man, but the Lord. He's going to go meet Jesus. He's going to go meet the Lord. Yahweh will stand before him. And for Saul, there is no second chance. His life will end literally in a matter of hours from this text. It is frightening. And he is paralyzed with hopeless despair. Where he was unwilling to believe the word of the Lord, he trusts now that the Lord's word is true. And we see in the text, look with me here, verses 20 through 25. The woman here in the text. She desperately urges him to eat, but he refuses. Still further, others join in. Come on, Saul, eat. You need to eat. Perhaps he's continued this fasting like he had done before, where he would fast in preparation for battle. He seems to have continued that practice here. Perhaps he was so paralyzed by the fear of the Philistine army, he was unable to eat. But this meal that he would eat would not satisfy the hunger for peace that he so desperately desired. For Saul, all hope is lost. She prepares him a a feast fit for a king. Any time this kind of feast, a fattened calf, this is a this is a big deal. It's like just Saul and two other guys. Like what what are we what are we killing a whole? Oh, calf for What's going on here? This is a feast fit for a king. Where perhaps we might expect him to eat in celebration of the Lord's impending victory. God's going to deliver us. Tonight, he will sit in silence and taste sorrow and regret. This is his final meal. This is the final meal that this man will ever eat. Now Saul knows the unchanging word of the Lord. Now Saul knows the power of the word of God. You know, fascinatingly, if you think about this, he doesn't try to avoid his fate. He doesn't try to wiggle out of this. He doesn't say, you know, hey guys, I'm going to stay back today. Because I got some bad news last night. No, the text tells us he goes headlong right into battle. See, he learned 
And he accepted the unchanging word. And we're told there in that final verse, verse 25, then they arose or rose and went away that night. Isn't that just a sad ending? It's really the last we'll, we'll hear of him until his death in chapter 31. But friends, I hope you've seen something though in this. That this scene reminds us of another king. Another king who led the people of Israel. Uh, this king also sat with a small band of his followers to eat his final meal before he would die. This particular king knew that he too would die the next day when he gathered around with his friends. But see, this king was different. This king's darkest day would in fact become his greatest day. Because where Saul lived for himself, this other king, he lived for God. Where Saul lived in rebellion, this king lived to obey every word of his father. Where King Saul deserved to die for his sin and rebellion, this other king, he didn't deserve to die. He was completely innocent. He had never done anything wrong. Rather, he died in the place of others. This other king is Jesus. King Jesus faced his darkest day on the cross so that you and I would not have to hear these words, tomorrow you will be with me, but rather, tomorrow you will be with me in paradise. See, death was nothing to be feared by King Jesus. He was not afraid by it because he overcame death. And through his resurrection, we are justified. And so this morning, if you are overcome by fear, like I am freaked out of my mind right now. I know I'm a sinner. I know what I heard in Romans, Romans chapter 3. That's me. Even if you're a Christian this morning and you have been living in rebellion against God, what you need is this other king, King Jesus. He died for your sins. Repent of your sins and trust in him. God was to be the king of Israel. He had delivered them from slavery and he had saved them from their enemies. And by turning to this other king, to this king, Saul, the people demonstrated their total mistrust in God and their dependence upon themselves. Their king reflected themselves, a king of self-reliance, self-dependence. And it reflects us too. We depend upon ourselves we pull ourselves up by our spiritual, our spiritual bootstraps. We get our lives together. But what we really need is another king. We need a new Lord in our life. We need King Jesus. Friend, you don't need to be afraid of the unknown. You don't need to be afraid of death. Because there's a king who reigns over death. Friend, trust Christ today. Turn from your selfishness and self-dependence and self-reliance. And trust in the King of Kings who faced the darkest day for you. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would seal our hearts around your word. That you would empower us to obey your word. That you would renew our covenant with you today. Father, we pray that as we gather around your your table this morning. 
that we would be reminded that it was the blood of, of our King Jesus who bled on that dark day for our sin and our iniquity, for our selfishness, for that selfish sin that we've been playing with this week. For that greed that we have, that we, that we bring out every once in a while. That lust that we pull out. And, and Lord, we pray this morning that you would remind us, renew us, that we are your children, that we've been invited to your table. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But you've freely given it as a gift to us today. Remind us that you're coming again to gather your church. Remind us today as we eat this supper that one day, one day so soon, we will eat this with you in eternity. This is our longing, Father. This is what we desire this morning. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.